Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. This time I've got Marie Williams, a unicorn. From Oakland, African-American woman who's achieved the most elite levels in the biggest tech companies as counsel in the big tech folks and some of the most promising early tech incubators. You'll hear about Facebook, Google, all turtles, and you'll hear about the agenda of diversity across big tech. She interviews me, actually, but I sneak in a few questions. I hope you'll find it interesting. Hello, and welcome to In the Know. Barry Williams, thank you for being my guest, or am I your guest? I think our pre-taped gives too much away. <laughs> I think it's both. Happy to well, be here and also happy to accost you. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, one of my big things with this series is getting to talk to people who are very thoughtful and smart and experienced on different topics and then learning a lot from them. And often it just happens serendipitously that like the thing that I want to learn is a big problem in my business, a big problem in my life, like a thing I'm working on. So I've been doing all this stuff around Notel and growth. And I, I ran into you at, at that incredible pinnacle conference, uh, Recode in the sweltering Arizona heat a couple months ago. And you're like, spotlight on stage in front of thousands of people. And you're like, hello, I'm a black woman. And I think diversity is a big deal. And everyone's like, yes, we agree. (laughs) Definitely. And then I ping you like a week or two afterwards. And I'm like, all right, tell me more about it. And you're like, I think you're the only person who followed up after that conference. I think there may have been maybe two more folks that followed up after that. Okay. Or three. Let me be fair. There were three. So I'm talking with you now. This is the second time we've talked. There is another woman I spoke to. And then we also got coffee when I was in LA. And Orchid, who I think you also met, she's lovely. She worked at Nestle. We both despised the idea of goat yoga, which they offered at that conference. What? Oh, God. Yeah. I oh, you, you didn't know about the goat yoga? I probably knew about it, but just dismissed it so totally that I've forgotten about it. That's probably for the best. But it was essentially like, imagine doing downward dog and there's a baby goat on your back. And (laughs) it's not trained, potty trained. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, no. I watched it from the safety of the pool. All right. So, Barry, (laughs) I'm ready to be uh, hijacked, but I am disclosing that I want to learn more about this thing because I am working on it quite a bit. I mean, I think I revealed to you as we were getting ready for this session. I am just working on the topic of diversity in our company. It's getting really big and the kind of original sin that marks every company, mm-hmm. like you got to get in early on some of these topics. So I'm going to want to investigate that, but I think it would be nice since I do plan on sharing our conversation with the Legion followers of In The Know, if we do a little like drum roll on you and your background and how you got to that stage. Sure. I will tell you exactly the way I got on stage. I mean, lawyer, else. bunch of big tech companies, it, counsel, yeah. is that the kind of story? Are you from Oakland? Yeah, or I mean, that's pretty, much, that's pretty much my story stops and starts, I feel like, with I am from Oakland, period, mm. exclamation point, dot, 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 and all of that. Yeah, Law I mean, nearby. that is literally how I got. college? No, I went to Berkeley. Oh, so you went to Cal and then the law school yeah. in Cal? Hastings. UCSB? Hastings okay. in San Francisco. So, so I am like a, the bar. You just like didn't even relocate? No. I am a, a Bay Area girl through and through. And more importantly for me, I'm like, I am an Oakland girl through and through. So mm, Right. Because it means a lot, right? I mean. Yeah. I mean, because. Very you know, important there, distinction. Bay yes. Area could be Atherton. Oh, which is no. <laughs> yeah. Different. <laughs> which is not where I'm from. Um, different background. Yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly what I I did when I got on stage at Recode is I literally got off the phone with my mom 
probably 30 seconds before and she was giving me the warrior score and <laughs> because they were in the finals and I, I, that's the only thing I cared about. Right. So yeah, I was born in the Kaiser hospital in Oakland. I had both of my children in the same Kaiser hospital in Oakland, which is crazy. My husband is from Oakland and he works at Google. And so it's very interesting to be two people from Oakland, two black people from Oakland that work in tech and to see how that industry well, you're the two, changed. right? Like you, you, you yeah, were a Facebook right. and he's a Google and it's you guys. Right. Now there's Google Mark, and I maybe was at Facebook more. and like mm. we're the special unicorns. <laughs> mm. But yeah, it is very interesting to see how the industry has changed our city and just the region in general. And we sat and had a conversation a couple months ago and we tried to figure out like, what was the thing before tech? Like, and neither of us could remember what did our friends' parents do when we were in elementary and middle school? And it's like some hmm. worked at Clorox, which was the big company in Oakland. Oh, yeah. They have that tower in like on Broadway yeah. in Oakland, right? Like, yeah, yeah, that's their headquarters. So it's like some worked at Clorox, some worked at Kaiser, which is their headquarters are also in Oakland. Kaiser Permanente, giant healthcare consortium. Correct. Very California focused. Yeah. yeah and, it, <laughs> and we could not remember what anybody else did. That was crazy. Is we were like, what did people do? And we're like, I don't know. <laughs> and increasingly so, a powerful force in Oakland, although mm -hmm. probably not where people hoped it would be yet. I mean, I remember when we were running Virgin Mobile, the company I had started, or even the next one, which was Peak, a smartphone company. Both times we really thought seriously and even did open small offices in Oakland and at a certain point had to retreat. Like we just couldn't get enough people to come <laughs> to Oakland from yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's yeah. the thing is like people, you could not pay people to come to Oakland, particularly in the 80s. And now you can't pay them to leave. That right. is the interesting and thing is when I'm in SF, I hear all the, I hear, right, you're going to say that word. And I just hear all that stuff just exactly the way we've heard for the last 15 or 20 years about Brooklyn here in New York and, uh, you know, one neighborhood after the next Queen where I live. And I hear all that stuff. I think Brooklyn's kind of on the other end of it. People aren't saying it as much. They've just sort of resigned themselves to what, what's happening. They've accepted it. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's and what's interesting. Is like, it, there but, are certainly you know. parallels between Brooklyn and Oakland. And it's funny because I have friends that are from Brooklyn. They have seen their communities change and they come here and they're like, wait, this doesn't look like what I saw two years ago. And I'm like, right, because now we look like Park Slope. <laughs> so yeah with a yeah. beautiful lake that park slope never had it is a amazing place oakland i almost lived there when i was living in the bay uh, area i came so close we'll, to like we'll still take you them all you you're still <laughs> welcome come on down i uh, yeah well the next time i move back to the bay area i probably will live in oakland i don't know why i chickened out actually you know what it was because i had to go down the peninsula every day and it was going to be mm. tough to go from oakland to palo alto all the time that'll but, do uh, it an hour well, and a half drive each way will make you question your life <laughs> okay, so that's the backstory of the present superhero. And you're not like out of tech. I mean, I, I met you in the context of you as, as counsel to this like startup builder that uh, yes. that Phil Lieben, who had run Evernote for a long time, has created called All Turtles. And uh, yes. I guess that's your sort of calling card, even though you might be juggling a few other things. Yeah. So first off, Phil is wonderful. There are founders that you meet and sometimes they have this one vision and they kind of pound the table and that's it. And he isn't that way. He is such a kind, sweet, caring person, and he wants to hear your ideas. And yeah, maybe they suck. And he might tell you, yeah, this isn't the best option. 
you hear so many kind of devil wears Prada versions of founders and he isn't that. And I just so appreciate that, that he is willing to listen and kind of marinate in an idea and figure out if it works for him or not. So I think he led the first unicorn. I think Evernote was like mm-hmm. the first private company valued at a billion, uh, which is like a colossal achievement. And the humility that he drapes himself in is amazing. I've only come to know him more recently, but yeah, I can I couldn't agree more with your with your yeah. He's he's wonderful. Guy. He's great. He is not someone who. The thing I love about him, too, is that he is very much a person that trusts the folks that he hires. And that is also hard to find in some founders, that you trust the people that you hire to know that they may know more about whatever you hired them to do. In my case, that's legal and that's policy. And there are some people who think that, oh, okay, well, no, I Googled this. And so the law says, and I'm like, yeah, the law says that in that one state, but you don't do business in one state. You do business in 50 states and another territory in this country. And it's very different. And he allows you the leverage to do whatever it is you need to do. And that is so appreciative. Like, that's wonderful. Okay, Barry, you know that we're going to edit out this whole love fest on Phil. No. This is not a paid placement. (laughs) Of course we do. So well positioned, very thoughtful, accomplished a lot. We know where you're from. I want to ask you some stuff about uh, the problems that my company has. Sure. But I want to be open. I want to be open. You know, we we could go a different direction. You told me you brought your your own agenda. Which direction do you want to go? You can go first. You're the host. I'm just acting like the host. We we could just, (laughs) on a dime, we could just flip around. Well, I'm curious. What was the pivot like? To be someone who may have been contemplating working from, for someone else or working for someone else and saying, you know what, I have my own idea and I'm going to go do this on my own. I don't even, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. Oh, just like, what was that pivot like? Why start companies? Yeah. Or what was the catalyst for you? Because I think it might be very different. My dad had his own company, but also my grandparents, you know, full disclosure, you see the New York Times 1619 project. Yes. Yeah. My grandparents were sharecroppers and they had third grade mm-hmm. educations. I actually mm-hmm. think I said that on the recode stage and that was not, I remember my mom was like, what are you doing? And I was like, Look, yeah, right. And then mean? people were slightly horrified. I mean, th- yeah, I mean people have like, no, no idea how close we are to the crimes of our country's past. Exactly. And I, and, and yeah, my mom was like, what are you doing? Like she literally, I got off, I got off the stage and I said, my mom had texted like back to back to back. To back. She was like, what are you doing? Stop talking about <laughs> this. Don't say, and I was like, no. I Talk about law school. Understand. <laughs> like, this is who yeah. I am, and this is how I got here. And it's important mm-hmm. that they understand the context of who was speaking to them. Yeah. And who, yeah. who was speaking to them is a granddaughter of sharecroppers who were barely literate. And the fact that I'm yeah. standing here talking to them is actually a fucking miracle. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to tell that story. And so, for me, I want to hear what your story was. So, for my dad, it was my parents we're barely literate and I'm going to go to Cal and I'm going to take everything I learned there and I'm going to turn it into a business to be self-sustaining. So what is your story on that? That's really interesting. So it's, well, just on that last point, so self-sustaining, it's about independence. Then for you. Mm-hmm. I don't want to work for nobody. And I guess there, my thing, yep. okay. So where do I come from? My parents are from India. They, they came from like pretty like, I mean, I don't, honestly, I don't know. I, I would, it would be hard for me to say exactly. It's often, you know, the very well-off will say we are middle class. I was about to say we came from a pretty middle class kind of family, but 
considering that there are zillions and zillions of people in India with nothing, I think we were very, very well off. When I check it out, we don't, you know, when we visit the villages and stuff, it doesn't sort of look like the palaces and stuff that you imagine that the super elite have. But they were like, you know, educated, professional, sort of like doctors and lawyers kind of people, which in India didn't make you like crazily rich, but it like sort of made you fine. Everybody was like well looked after, owning home and uh, sending kids to school and not worried about eating and stuff like that. So that's my parents' parents. My mom had finished studying to be a doctor and my dad had finished studying to be uh, like a business guy. They, they used to have these like business degrees. He became an accountant and uh, they worked a little bit there and then they came to the U.S. and they, you know, it's sort of an immigrant story, but immigrant story that came with a lot of skills and professional qualification. From there, you know, I'm just fortunate to be their child because I got everything I could possibly need to do everything I did after that. You know, we lived in Queens, maybe weren't fancy, maybe went to public school, whatever, but like there's really nothing that I ever felt was like a shortcoming. But my dad's business was an accountant. He was an accountant. He had an accounting firm. He had a, like a couple dozen people who worked for him and he worked for all these clients. So he was sort of like a small businessman, you know, and often coming up with crazy schemes. And he had all these little side businesses that he started over time. Some of them became a bit successful. And these days when we uh, talk about entrepreneurship, we don't usually talk about the stuff he did, like starting chains of laundromats and things like that. But that was the 1970s, 1980s version of entrepreneurship, I think, for some people. And so how did I get to it? Well, I think partly... I think that's really important, though. I honestly think that that's very important. And the reason why I say that is because there are lots of folks who don't value that type of work. I think that that is, to me, I look at that. I've been in tech for six years proper. But before that, when I was in a law firm and started in 2008, I was doing tech transactions. I saw the precursor for a lot of the things that we see now with Postmates and everything else. There is a man who comes to my house every Monday and Thursday and picks up my dry cleaning. That is very much a precursor to what you're talking about, which led, you know, rents and all of these other tech companies and apps. And my thing is, don't discount that. Like, your dad is a pioneer. He was Hmm. doing something that other people have now turned into apps. That's the only difference. Yeah, it's super cool. Yeah, it's outsourcing because... Um, I outsource every single thing I can outsource in my life possible. <laughs> if I can outsource dinner, I do, DoorDash. If I can outsource trying to drive long places, I do, Lyft. If I try to outsource anything else, Postmates. But your dad, that's foresight. The only thing he didn't have was an app. Yeah, well, totally. Right. I mean, so he's an entrepreneur. And, and I didn't mean to like sort of put him in a box. What I wanted to say is, my dad was an entrepreneur. He is one. Mm-hmm. Like every day he comes to me with some crazy scheme. And he's like, hey, I'm all I have this fine. He's a barbershop. Talk to me about IPOs. And I'm like, homie, it's a barbershop. <laughs> he's like, no, we're going for it. So, I mean, he's so cool. And that is a part of how I got to where I'm at. But the other part of your question, you know, just about like attitude. I have never been a good instruction follower, rule follower. It's always been obvious to me that I would suck. Like I would get internships and quit after a week. Like I just could never be anybody's peon in their massive organization. I was always so bad at it. So it was pretty clear for me, like in every step. And so really early on, I, I, I tried to start companies when I was in college. And then when I was in graduate school at Stanford, I, you know, I was doing like a PhD in philosophy, which basically means I wasn't really doing anything. I had infinite time to just pass. And I met up with some folks who wanted to do something really ambitious. We tried it. It happened to work. And then I never really had to 
do it another way. That was Virgin Mobile. So Virgin Mobile becomes a big business. And I'm like, great, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not going to ever be like, you know, somebody's entry level associate somewhere. I'm just going to try to start companies. So it's like that Steve Jobs pirates in the mm-hmm. Navy thing. I'm totally a pirate. That's funny. Be a pirate. Yes. You just make things happen. You hack them. That's the answer. Yeah. Well, now I'm trying to hack this problem, though, because like, so now I've, I've started a bunch of companies. This one. Which you have been have very experience. successful at. So let's talk about that. Let's yeah. I mean, some about, of them have been. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, so Virgin let's Mobile talk became about a big that. business. Don't. I know that I have hijacked. <laughs> I've hijacked <laughs> this now, but I don't want you to be humble. Let's talk about the things you have been successful with. Yeah, for sure. Well, that first one, of course, you know, with my colleagues, and I wasn't the main guy at Virgin Mobile. Like there was this other guy, John Tantum, who involved me early on. And it's like, I'm kind of lucky he did it because I wouldn't have done it on my own by any stretch. And we had this idea, let's make a mobile phone that young people can use. And what does that mean? Who are young people? Well, young people are people with no credit who aren't going to like pass a credit check and sign a contract. And then as we started going down that path, we're like, whoa, there's a lot of people like that who would rather just like take some cash, get a phone and just like have a phone, not have to like ask their parents or like maybe they're not documented or like whatever. There's so many reasons, but you should have a mobile phone. Let's make a product you can buy in a store and just use. That's Virgin Mobile becomes a big business, goes public. Me and John are not there the whole way. Within the first few years, there's all this like professional grown-up management that gets brought in and those guys start sort of peacocking around and we're just like, can't deal, can't work for somebody else, I guess. And so we leave and then he and I start another company not too long afterwards, which is a smartphone version of that same company, really. It was just like a simple smartphone. 2008, the iPhone comes out, it costs 600 bucks. We're like, hey, let's try to make one that costs 30 So we make this ultra simple email, messaging, texting kind of thing called Peak. And we built that company together. And that one didn't get quite as big, but it was acquired by SoftBank a few years later in 2012, which was great. And then these last five or six years, I've been building lots of companies because after having sort of had two really good experiences, I felt like I understood. And I was helping other people and building one or two things. There's this great company called Halo Neuroscience that I started with some other friends, which is a gadget that makes the brain work better. I'm just sort of hanging around. And then all of a sudden, here I am, this company, Notel, the end of 2015, decided to start working on Office. And this thing has been getting really big. I mean, just in a few years, it's multiples bigger than any of the companies I've ever started before. And I'm actually still in charge, which is amazing. No one thought I had to be replaced by some veteran expert. So maybe I've learned a few things. But that's, there you go. Those are all the good things I've ever done. I don't even know where to go with this because (laughs) seriously, and I say that because, you know, I've watched entrepreneurs do things. My dad was one. My father-in-law is one. But to see someone with your level of success and track record, you don't see that. So what do you attribute your success to that? Like, what has been a grounding factor that has been intangible? Uh, I think you're too kind. I think it's probably just good storytelling by me. I think if you hang in there for a while, you can craft some version. I don't know. Well, what did I do, I guess? Like, I hung in there. Not everything I did worked. Probably in between each of the three or four things I mentioned that sound good or simultaneous with each of those. I did like a couple or a few that are useless. And uh, a lot of do fail and then give up. Mm -hmm. It sort of makes sense. But my whole professional life, I've just been startup founder again, 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 Mm -hmm. on the theory that it is a little bit of a casino. So you got to stay in. And then apart from that, I have tried to 
make the right choices. And I mean, I don't know that I'm the only one who has a sense for what those would be, but there is like a family of of good ideas on how to choose the right business, the right time, the right co-founders, the right approach, whatever. You know, I've been trying to do some of those things. And in a way, that's what this whole podcast series is about. You know, it's like about sharing some of those learning. There's no way that I'm like extraordinarily successful compared to all the unbelievably amazing people. Like Lieben, I mean, the guy's amazing. Evernote is like a world-changing business. I don't think I've ever done anything like that. So in all humility, yes, you're right. I have been very lucky in some of this stuff. And some of that, has, I'm sure, has to do with things I did. But I don't know. I can't bottle it for you. I'm curious as to what, this is the other thing, because I am a huge diversity advocate. And so I look at my life, and I will also ask you this, because this may be interesting to other listeners, but I can give you my 2016 election theory on this, as to why I came to this conclusion. But I always feel like I'm a three for one, if you really break it down. Now, I say that, but people discount my Native American heritage because the first thing they see, particularly now since I went to Mexico last week, I'm super tan. So I'm like (laughs) extra black. (laughs) I'm like super black. And I think I showed you a picture before of my husband. So my husband is light-skinned and my husband looks like how I normally look. So imagine Mm -hmm. me looking like Kevin Durant with a tan, which is like beyond. (laughs) And so people don't look at it that way, which is fine. Whatever. My primary identity, I believe, is being Black first. And second is being a woman. Now, when you add to the fact, add to all of those things, rather, or those two things, I am five foot ten. I have natural hair. It is big and curly. And you didn't see that because it was in a bun the whole weekend. But right now, Uh. if you could see it, you would see it. It is curly and it is fluffy. And... I've been mistaken for the scribe, the secretary, the paralegal, the assistant, everything else under the sun more times than you can count. And what I always find is interesting is what are the primary identities other people identify themselves as? And the reason why I ask that and say that is the other interesting piece that people never know about me or understand is, so my name is actually Bari. All right, I'm telling you, Barry. Barry. Yeah. Yes. So Barry, the name Barry. My brother-in-law and my father-in-law are both named Barry. Oh, (laughs) cool. Which is like, what are the odds? So their names are Barry Williams, and I'm like, great. And so I was teasing my (laughs) husband, like, you clearly wanted somebody that reminded you of your dad and your brother. There is science behind this. There is. I mean, right? People named Dennis (laughs) become dentists at a higher rate. That's funny. Now you know I'm going to go Google that, right? I'm I'm literally going to go Google that as soon as we... But yeah, so my mother and my father knew each other in high school, same as my husband and I met. We knew each other in high school. And my dad went to Cal, and he converted to Islam. He changed his name. He was raised Christian. He changed, you know, converted to Islam. So my mom got a book called The 99 Names of Allah, and she found my name in this book because she wanted to ensure that my name actually like matched my last name, which was my maiden name, which was Arabic. So my name is actually Bari. And people never say that. And when they hear my mom say it, they're always surprised. And it means the evolver. And so I'm always curious to hear if other people have interesting religious stories or anything having to do with their names or experiences. And for me, I guess, Probably the most interesting would be after 9-11, I was like, oh, God, this sucks. 
because I got stopped everywhere because I had an Arabic name. So like, uh, ma'am, you were selected in a in a screening. Random, like, yeah, random screening. Yeah, how random is this? Hmm. <laughs> I get selected for those from time to time, but not all the time. But I, I suppose if I was a black woman with big hair and Muslim right. with an Arabic name, right? Hmm. It's like, hmm. Let's see. I will say, and although, this is the thing although I, told I think my on the security like, tourism sort of thing, I think like dudes are probably more uh, under scrutiny than, than women are. Oh, yeah, for sure. But I think I, that's the first thing I did, like, because we got married in 2004. So it was after 9-11. And my thing was like, oh, I'm going, I'm running down to change my last name. Because mm-hmm. my last name is Williams. That sounds a lot better and less profile worthy of the maiden name that I have, which was just straight Arabic, which got me stopped everywhere. So, yeah. But... You know, I'm curious, have you had any experience with that? Growing up, being Indian was a little more heavily discriminated against than it is these days. It's still not perfect, but back in the day, it was like the Simpsons and Apu and uh, taxi drivers and all that kind of thing. That's when I was you know, a kid in mostly white neighborhood in Queens. So that was pretty annoying, but... I don't know. It's sort of hard to tell whether that was just like difference, just like normal difference. Like everyone's a little different and a little bit discriminated against in a way just because they're whatever, short, tall, fat, skinny, Jewish, Hindu, Muslim, like all that sort of stuff. So it wasn't the best, but it, it didn't really seem too insanely difficult in such a multicultural city like New York. You know, I would say that, I, you know, like my self-identity is I'm an Indian American. Mm-hmm. Kind of hard to say anything else. It's like a you know, it's a visible character trait. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, but like you know, being Indian American is um, there's all these like stereotypes which are all like in your favor, right? It's like oh, your parents are fucking like doctors and you're good at math and all this kind of thing. So it's a little hard to get too upset about it. It's a little annoying sometimes, but I don't feel it's been a hugely difficult experience. Actually, I kind of feel like it's a privilege to walk around and be like, well, I'm not that kind of doctor. I'm a different kind of, you know? So I count myself in the privilege group on uh, on race. Nothing matters. But that's interesting because there are folks who have it harder in certain experience. That's what has been interesting is talking to folks who are Indian American and they have these sort of different experiences. And it's interesting to hear you say that to some extent it's worked in your favor. And that is not necessarily always the case. So that's... No, I totally agree. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, definitely the New York thing helped, right? Like I was in New York and oh, yeah, yeah. basically my whole life. If I grew up in Iowa or Texas or something, it would have been way Oh, worse. yeah, then that would have sucked. Yeah, and it, it has <laughs> changed over time. So changing over time is another factor. It's gotten a lot easier. Uh, so there's that. And, uh, you know, like I hadn't had good luck and had a few things work out in the right way. If mm-hmm. I was trending in the other direction, then this would be working against me. When things are trending in the right direction, that like for you, right? So you are, as you said a few minutes ago, the tech unicorn. Yay. <laughs> Overachieving, you know, Oakland born, black woman, powerful, whatever. But then if things weren't working out, it'd be like, oh, too bad. Everyone's yeah. against us. It does kind of like momentum does tend to accumulate in, in my opinion. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I do sort of feel like, you know, I don't have a lot of grievances, but, I, but the world does see me a certain way, definitely. Yeah. And I think there is a certain amount of privilege that you're speaking to that I think I wasn't even necessarily 
thinking about or speaking to prior to this that you made me think of? That is, my parents, they were married and they got divorced, but being raised by a light-skinned Black woman that a lot of people found attractive or found acceptable or both is very, very different (laughs) than being with my dad's family who is darker skinned and less educated and, and all of kind of those stereotypes that people have about people essentially related to him and to some extent were true is very different. It's interesting. And I even kind of think about that now, like, So I have two kids and my son is nine and my husband is also nine. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) what's today? Wednesday. He might be nine today and he might be 13. It depends. But my husband is six foot six, but he is very fair skinned. Our daughter, she's four and she looks exactly like him, like with a wig on. And our son, he has my exact same face. But he's nine and he is five feet tall. He is darker complexion than I am. Like for me, it's my focus is very much on him because he is darker skinned and because he's so tall. There are certain things that you have to think of as safety issues. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, yeah, I hate that I have to think about that. Well, I mean, earlier you were speaking about, you know, I'm two generations from sharecroppers. The other one is. I'm a mom and I have to talk to my son about getting shot by the police. Exactly. And like we've gone through that drill. Of like, you cannot, when we're out places, you cannot run from me. Even if you think it's funny and you're running and you're like, no. Oh because if, if we're in certain places, if police see you running, even if I'm following you, they'll think that you did something. And so you, you can't do that. And it is scary. And it's a safety hazard. And it's even teaching him how to conduct himself in school and with other classmates and when you're mm. on play dates. He is literally the youngest person in his class, but he's the biggest. That's because you have a five foot 10 mom and a six foot six dad. And you just happen to get the luck of the draw to be brown. I mean, in a different (laughs) world, in a different place, like he's the luckiest kid in the world. Like the genetic heritage he gets from you guys is insanely great. But yeah. I like to think so. I mean, if you can convince him, Amal, that like... He swims and he hates it. But I'm like, dude, you're swimming against 12 and 13 year olds. Like, get down totally. with this. And he's like, no, I don't like it. And I was like, I don't like a lot of things, but I do. Well, I think you need cause... to talk to him about stereotypes <laughs> and dispel his uh, I hate swimming thing. Yeah, <laughs> we talked about that. And But he, his thing is like, I want to run track. And I was like, oh, so does every black kid on earth. <laughs> like, you want to run track and you, next you're going to tell him you want to play basketball. And he's like, I do. I'm not good at it, but I can get rebounds. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I know. And I'm like, come on. But this will actually get you a scholarship to college. Like, don't you want to go to college for free? And he's like, well, I just want to go where I want. I was like, no, no, no. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, 
there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Okay, okay, my turn. We're pursuing some of your core questions, ideas, and interests around diversity, and I want to pursue a few of mine. You work, and your husband does work, at companies that are colossally lopsided, like mm-hmm. appallingly so, and their public statements <laughs> on this stuff are like almost mm. in the ballpark of the kinds of things that you wish people would say. I mean, yeah. at least it's better than what, like, whatever the traditionalist kind of industries say, but, like, it's hard to find a company, it's hard to find, a, like, a role model. Mm-hmm. in um, the world of these large businesses, you know. And for my part, I'm building one. And we're not mm-hmm. that big, you know, maybe we're like 500 people, but it's going to be 5,000. And if things keep going, then it'll be 50. I really do think like we're on that track. This isn't just me fantasizing. This is me thinking, oh man, I better plan. Like it's happening. And and on the topic of diversity, like what corporate leaders often say is, well, it's so hard to change. You know, we're, we're in a certain situation. Well, I'm like, okay, well, we're super early right now. We're only 500 out of 50,000. Can we please start doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. And what I am struggling with with my colleagues, and many of them are very well-intentioned and very expert actually on these topics, but they come from other large institutions. And to be very expert at the world's largest pharma company or the world's largest energy company or at the world's largest social network in a way is like not saying that much because none of them has pulled it off. Many of them are just really good at giving excuses and I'm really frustrated. And there are these long lists of things to do and they all do them and then we do them and everyone sucks. How do you think about it? How do you improve it? And how do you set a goal and move towards it? Just like, what would it be to be better? And you don't have to like give me like a tight and precise answer. You can just be frustrated with me. That's yeah. fine, because that would actually be helpful as well, because I hate all these like but consultants. But I'm not going to be frustrated with you, Amal, because you're thinking about this. And I can honestly say, having been in these large companies and even small ones, it's not something people readily think about or that is on their radar. And so the fact that it is on your radar and you do think about that is like step two, <laughs> because <laughs> most people don't even contemplate it. And to me, that is super important because if you think about something and you're aware of it, the step after that is like, okay, what do I do to fix it? Which is what you asked. And most people, particularly in tech, in my experience, they are not humble enough to even know what they don't know. And you're saying, no, I know what I don't know. So how the hell do I get there? So that to me is above and beyond. Oh, shucks. I know. A little Southern <laughs> hospitality for you. But no, come on. Well, I didn't Let's say be real. I mean, it's so nice of you to be friendly about it, but like, it fucking sucks. I really want to do better on this thing. And I have no, yet to meet anyone. I, I, don't, I don't doubt that you want to be better, but I think part of being better is, is being cognizant. And that is mm-hmm. step one. And a lot of people are not. And you are. Okay. And, and so actually, the fact like, that maybe, you're cognizant, that's one. So maybe your comment, which I'm taking as nice, is actually like a really tough observation 
about everybody yeah. else. Yeah, they're it, just it pretending is. to care. Like they're just having to spend a minute and caring about the it. The perfect example I can give of that is what I have seen in other tech companies, particularly large tech companies. You make these donations to organizations, whether it's girls who code, black girls who code, you know, Grace Hopper, whatever. Pick your favorite, right? You make these donations, but you don't have any metrics to figure out where did the money go? What did the money fund? Did you fund a cohort? If you funded a cohort, how many people are in that cohort? And of that cohort, how many people did you give an internship or a job to? If you don't have any of those metrics, all you did was throw money at a problem and make a press release to say that you threw money at a problem. And that's bullshit. Like that's I mean, trash. we're not on live TV, and I don't think any children. But like, the point that you're making, that is there's probably a role for, for like PR marketing stunts. You but know, that's exactly, like, but a lot, but that is my yeah. issue, Amal, is like mm-hmm. most of these diversity people with a handful mm-hmm. of folks that I could name by name. I will say Rachel Williams, not her. Bernard Coleman at Uber, not him. I could name names and say, these people are not about that life. They want to do real work. And there are other people who are fine being PR mouthpieces for diversity efforts as long as their check clears on the 1st and 15th, but they're not going to get you any actual effort and growth and move the percentage. And that is my issue. Well, my version of this, and because, you know, when I'm in the office, I have to be friendly and polite. My version of this is there is no other department in the business where it would be acceptable to be like, hey, we're trying. Exactly. Everyone's So why is that okay with diversity? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And And that seems to be because there's a subtext that it's impossible. But that's the party line with all of these companies. And it shouldn't be. Like that is not acceptable. But somehow that has been made acceptable because that's the party line. My chest and say, no, I'm not riding for that. If you are really about what you say you're about, then you would treat diversity like the four-legged stool that it is. And what that means, those are your employees, those are your suppliers, those are your customers, and those are your board members. And if you are not hitting on all four of those cylinders, you messed up. So thinking broadly about your stakeholders, definitely. Suppliers is kind of one that I think is often overlooked, but definitely like customers, completely investors. Completely. Yeah, suppliers. I mean, in our business, like we touch so many different kinds of companies and suppliers. It's very important. And that is always a source and position in which you can give people business. And that may be business that introduces them to an industry they would have never had an entree to before. The way that I look at that and the way I was inspired by it is my mom was a teacher and she retired about maybe four or five years ago. She was a teacher for 40 years. Whoa. She taught, yeah. And she taught in Oakland School District and Berkeley School District. And she specifically only requested to be in schools where there were predominantly black and brown kids because she wanted them to see someone that looked like them. So she would bring kids home for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, for their birthdays. She would throw them parties. She was like, oh, do you remember Jerome? And I was like, no, I don't. But hi i mean whatever but that's the thing is like those kids their parents were working multiple jobs and my mom would bring them home and like give them dinner and then drive them back home like you don't have teachers that do that kind of stuff anymore Hmm. and i appreciated that and i saw how much 
she didn't, you know, I belong to a lot of different organizations and she always mocks me for that. Like, oh, you're a joiner. Ha ha ha. And <laughs> yeah, my mom clowns me all the time. Well, she's, but the host. she's lovely. And she's like, ha ha, you ain't shit. But she would bring kids home and she would do those things for them. And she did it quietly. It wasn't like people didn't know. But I watched, you know, I watched her make an impact on people's lives. And there are people I've met randomly in a grocery store. They were like, oh, are you Miss Hall's daughter? And I'm like, oh, my God, how do you? Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Like, how do you even guess that? And they're like, oh, well, you look just like her. And she was my sixth grade teacher and I loved her. And I'm like, uh, yeah, that's, that's my mom. And they're like, wow. can you tell her she was so fantastic? And I did ended up doing blah, blah, blah. And to so me, cool. that is so rewarding because it's like, I saw her make those sacrifices. And to me, to have somebody come up to me that I don't even know to say this is like validation of the fact that what you did wasn't in vain. That's amazing. That is amazing. But I think the same thing, and she has said this to me, is like, you could do the same thing with tech. It's just you all have to decide, is your industry going to be used for good mm-hmm. or is it going to be used to further marginalize people that are marginalized. And I was like, oh, I'm not ready okay. for that. Okay, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think, <laughs> I think many of these big institutions actually don't care and they yeah. probably don't spend any time on it. And there isn't any kind of deep engagement on this. I think, you know, like the Zuckerbergs and all them, it's like a five minute, hey, can I just review the press release and add my mm-hmm. quote thing? Mm-hmm. That's probably mm-hmm. true. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to even think of any evidence for the crime. I hate Mm. that. And it's hard because I look at it from Mm. the standpoint of, I feel like everything that my mother did to prepare her students to go out into the world and do whatever they do. And even for my dad to take the fact that his parents are barely literate and go to Cal and graduate in three years and do what he did is like, I should be able to combine those things. Right. And like my goal is, and I've always looked at it. I took a picture of my mother with my holding my daughter when she was one And I was like, you know what? What's interesting about this is I'm the bridge between the two of them. Because my mother lived an entire life without the internet. And my daughter will (laughs) never know life without the internet. And I am the bridge in between them. And what am I doing to ensure that that is equitable? And that honestly is what fuels me and drives me. And that's what you saw at Recode was me talking about How does this work in terms of facial recognition technology? How does this work in terms of criminal justice system? Now, what I will say is I like the fact that Andrew Yang has talked about AI and automation and robotics and what that means in terms of jobs and how do we train people. And now Bernie came out yesterday and was like, ban facial recognition technology. I hate it. It's terrible. It's going to discriminate. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's part of his tech policy. Can you say something nice about Kamala Harris? Kamala's first name, since she's yeah. a little bit Indian, the first name yeah. of my grandmother. I love her. She's funny. So I love her. Her. Wait a second. Her, black people are supposed to like Kamala Harris. She's black. I mean, who, who, yeah. You well, we do. Well, and we do. Most of us do. Um, <laughs> I will say Kamala is my sorority sister. She is part of the first and finest black sorority that ever existed. Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, and. We hosted a fundraiser for her in 2009 and we were serving wine and she was like, oh, you're not drinking it. And I, and I was pregnant with my son and I hadn't told anybody. And I was like, well, I'm pregnant. She was like, ah! Oh, she knew? Well, I told her. 
I had to tell her. Uh, she's like, you're not drinking your own wine. And I was like, I can't. But I love her. I think she's fantastic. I think the way that people are portraying her is inaccurate in the sense that she's a lawyer. We're pragmatic. Yeah. Yeah. And people are portraying her as cautious and flip-flopping. That isn't it. She's pragmatic. She wants to do the best thing that she can do, but she wants to do the best thing that's going to work. And I appreciate that. You know, take that for what it's worth. The other thing that yeah, I Yeah, well, really thank you. Hate, well, so you were characterizing a few of these candidates on the sort of... Sort of now, uh, I would love to see them come out with a... tech. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, Amal. If I could get all of these candidates to release like a tech policy about where they stand on AI and robotics and like privacy policies. If well, I could get tech and social free, justice. I mean, I, like the dimension of that's yes. kind of a little bit new this last few years is tech's impact on social justice. That would mm -hmm. be very interesting. And it's like, it's sort of hard to pick, you know, because like tech does good things and it does help and it does liberate. So it's, it's really interesting to, to try to figure it out. But one of the easiest things in the world is to raise the alarm and and there is that's a job yep. like we need people yep. to do that and be really smart and not to be wimps and just like really make sure that we don't forget what's dangerous because all those techno optimists are always like hey it'll be fine don't worry about it so yes we must raise the alarm but in a way it's easy because it's like it's always kind of the same thought experiment the thing i'm curious about and i want to investigate a little bit with you is okay so big giant tech companies, lots of big companies, just really the, the world of business, it hasn't been fair to lots of different types of folks. And you can just see it in the numbers. Diversity is one way to talk about it. Who's the role model? Like, who's great? Is there anybody who's great that we should be trying to, like, because if you go through the little checklist of things you should do, and, you know, it's like the head of people at Google or somebody who posts the post about it, well, they don't speak from a position of authority on that topic. They have not been great. I mean, where, what? should we admire in the American business and global business and maybe not even in business, maybe in like education or government or like, is there somewhere that we can look and we can feel like, okay, these guys are figuring something out. out there. <sighs> yeah. That's the hard part. Right. Cause I feel like I'm looking at all of these candidates and I personally, I really, really love three people. I love Castro. I love Warren and I love Harris. The hard part for me is thinking about what is their experience level in terms of dealing with a lot of the issues that we've talked about. Because as much as people think tech is like an outlier, it's not. Because it is so embedded in every part of our economy and every part of jobs and every part of everything. And if you don't have the experience in that realm, it's going to be very hard for you to navigate it. One thing I did note about Andrew Yang in the last debate is he brought this up. He talked about tech being an outlier and something that people, you know, it was going to displace jobs and workers. And is it on private companies or is it on the government to retrain workers? I just was thinking to myself, yeah. I mean, I know he's not going to get the nomination because of the polling. Maybe I should stop because polling didn't work last time, but whatever. But he likely will not get it. But I think this well, is he's definitely that, positioning himself as like text candidate. Yes. And I definitely think this is what he's talking about is something other people should think about. And I think Bernie was smart and he picked that up and he started talking about facial recognition. But I think that this is a larger issue that people should adopt and should be thinking about. How do you 
fold this technology into criminal justice systems? How do you fold this technology into job training? Like all of these things are very, very pertinent. And I appreciate it. But if we switch off politics for a sec, if we switch off politics for a sec, and if we think Mm -hmm. of the area that we are really close to, which is building companies and just hanging with the people who do. Who should we admire? Like, are there companies that have done it, that have gotten there to the promised land, so to speak, that we should think, wow, these are the companies that we should try to like learn from? Or is everybody just messed up and they're all just trading blog posts about, oh, this this policy, that policy? I will say, and this is just my personal experience from being at one of those larger companies, I think people have good intentions. But, you know, my grandmother also used to say good intentions are is the road paved to hell. So mm-hmm. you could think you're doing the right thing all day long. But if you don't stop and gut check that or check with someone else who may be affected, that is where you go wrong. And that's what I mean when I say that I don't know that tech has the wherewithal and the hubris to say, I don't know what I don't know. Because a lot of these founders think that they know everything. And so they're not going to say, I don't know what I don't know. And that's how you end up with subversion of democracy and ads paid in rubles and deep fakes and everything else. So, yeah. And the problem is if you don't have someone actively working to stop that stuff right now, it's just going to continue into 2020. So the biggest point is deep understanding. Yes. And it's a deep understanding. Find a way to get closer to that. Yeah. It's like, what is it that we can do? And I wouldn't even put it, the way I would posit it is, what can we do to help you better understand and help you make a better product? Because that is what people want to hear. They don't want to tell you and they don't want to answer to how they fucked up. No one wants that. So if you were saying, this is how I can help you, this is where I would help you, and this is how it would be beneficial, people love that. What they do not want to hear is how they fucked up. So you can Mm. save that. Keep it put, write it in your diary. Well, I mean, I think that companies kind of mess up in a a bunch of predictable ways. Like, so for example, startup founders need to kind of be rich to not worry about failing Mm -hmm. or have a backup plan because like, Mm -hmm. you know, their dad with the accounting firm has a job for them somewhere, like in my case. And if that's where you start from, then you're often not going to look like folks that come from backgrounds that maybe Mm. don't have that much of a safety net. And then your pals are going to be the pals you hung out with doing all the things you do. And so now you've got your like your co-founders and me and my co-founder. Yay. We did all this stuff. Well, then the networks around will look like that. And then Mm -hmm. the first few hires and now you're into like five or six or seven hires and the first 10 people in the company are, are there. And you don't mm-hmm. have a wonderfully diverse group. And, and it's actually most people will not criticize a group like that because it's like, hey, like you're a tiny little company. You could everyone, die in a day. Yeah, every, and everyone We don't have time to, to worry about such things. But then 10 becomes 100 and 100 becomes 1,000. And those first few moves have a huge set of implications. It's really and hard to reverse And you have to, to think them. about those things. But, mm-hmm. And the thing that I would tell you, which I greatly appreciate, and which is also I want to introduce you to Tiffany because she's seen it with Visa and MasterCard is you're thinking about those things. And there are so many people who don't, like literally do not. And I have talked to multiple VCs. Everyone says, if you get to a point where you're at 150, 
200 people and you're just now thinking about diversity, it's too late. And so you are at the point where you are actually ready to think about it and to do something. And I appreciated that you reached out and said, I want to meet people. I want to know what to do because most people don't. Well, I mean, I've been trying to do this since we were 10. And I mean, and I think we've made some good steps, but you know, there's just more to do. And I'm just trying to, to learn more about it. Okay. So you let me run the, the agenda for a little while. And, and I guess in theory, <laughs> you're like writing a book and you're interviewing me about something. And, and so, I mean, what's the book and what are you interviewing me about and what else do you want to add? Yeah. So it is essentially about, it's 25 interviews of people who have dealt with some type of interesting workplace phenomenon. And that could be based on race, gender, age or ability, LGBTQ status, religion, immigration status. So all of those things. And I will say there has been, what has been most interesting about this is all the intersectionality that has, I had a gay Mormon veteran that, and that was just like, and I was like, oh my God, I'm not, I don't know that I'm ready. You were doing this whole thing with like, what is your primary identity? What did the gay Mormon veteran start with? Yeah. Well, his was gay. Male. And what was, <laughs> and yeah. And what was interesting about that was that because his primary identity was gay, he was like, I can't be in the church. And that to me was like profound. Because it's you can't be a part of something that has been a part of your entire life because it doesn't accept who you are. Well, I mean, I think I think probably yeah. like the gay community accepts Mormons, and if the yes. Mormons want to reject, like that, it's there's a little bit of polarity to that. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And his thing was like, I can't be a part of this because it doesn't speak to who I am, and it won't allow me to be who I am. And I was like, oh, oh, that was. <laughs> so interesting and the other piece to that was even interviewing white women they had to decide for the first time in 2016 they had never been asked am i white or am i a woman oh come on because they never had oh to pick. well in that particular election yeah correct yeah. and it was like oh shit what am i and they majority of them picked white and that was very interesting Wait, you were interviewing in of- a bunch of women that the majority picked white and they're like, I voted for Donald Trump because I'm white. Yeah. And they were like, I'm white. And I was like, Oh, I gotta go. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. What else, what else you want to, what else should we get in there? I think the thing I want to leave people, particularly with you is like the fact that you were a founder and you were aware of these things and you think about them consciously is so much more and far ahead than other people founders and people I've dealt with because they don't tend to think about those things until honestly it's too late. So I appreciate you and I respect you. I revere you. Thank you. We're going to, we're going to edit all that stuff out. Thank you though for saying, (laughs) thank you for being on in the note. Yes. Anything you need always here. Hey listeners. Thanks for subscribing or thanks for just tuning in a special request from me on this podcast that you are growing to love. Write a review, please. A five-star review spreads the word and people will follow. Cheers, thank you, and stay tuned for the next 30 episodes. I'm so excited we've just passed a big milestone. It didn't take long and all of a sudden we're up at 40 episodes of people telling us how to spread great ideas.